0: You can't, like, you can't pick your nose or like scratch your ears on this thing. I
1: know. That's most so of no what idea. I do when I'm on the podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today is going to be just a solo episode, or I guess solo with Michael and myself, uh, <laughs> where we've been thinking about something. And this week, we're going to start off by thinking about puppies, or specifically puppy paws, <laughs> uh, which may have lost some listeners based on that initial <laughs> puppy reference. But uh, everybody loves puppies.
0: Andrew, come on! I, well, no, I know. you're a cat person, aren't you?
1: Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. uh, No, no, the, uh, my thought was that we're going to lose people because we're not actually talking about puppies. But uh, the, the reference here is based on UCI regulation changes. And the UCI has been, uh, depending on who you ask, they've been messing around with rules and changing things that were well established in the pro peloton. Um, But some people agree for the better. And, some people don't agree, so it's a very divisive topic.
0: These regulations have uh, come about, it sounds like, as a, as an attempt by the UCI to improve the safety of riders. Um, and you are, as Andrew alluded, you're going to hear a mixed uh, mixed bag of uh, of pro and con argumentation uh, for these rules. Uh, we're going to stay out of that thing, and we're gonna we're gonna try to uh, keep our keep our tires in the more firmly, um, quantitative side of, of the argument. And, uh, we're going to try to actually assess the difference between the, the position that will be banned. And I think they're being banned as of, as of April 1st, you know, April fools, um, and sort of what one of the next best options is. So, there you may have read about how this uh, this rule change and specifically we're gonna, we're not talking we're not touching the super tuck today we didn't do that analysis we just looked at the the puppy paws versus non puppy paws. and for those of you who are not uh, indoctrinated in <laughs> road racing cross dog breed i don't know analogies uh, puppy paws is a position where you treat your road bicycle almost like a time trial bicycle except you obviously do not have any extensions. So the forearms uh, that would be normally rested or your elbows would normally be rested on the cups, on the uh, the supports of the of the time trial bike, uh, leading into your aero extensions with your hands grasping the, the tips of the aero extensions where the shifters are. In this position, and I'm sure you've seen it if you watch any cyclo racing, your forearms are ra- resting close to the stem on the top of the on the top of the the drop bar, and your hands are kind of hanging out in free space. And they, you know, if you stretch your mind a little bit, they sort of look like puppy dog paws. Hence the name.
1: <laughs> I was just trying to visualize that. There, um, it's yeah. I think for obvious reasons, we can see why this is maybe not the best idea because you're not really holding on to anything. And I do remember a specific event at. Uh, um, Ironman Maryland for myself coming down off a bridge. And I was in the arrow bars, uh, fully gripping everything. And I hit a pothole that I wasn't paying attention to. And I almost lost it there. And that was going, you know, coming downhill a little bit. So going maybe 43 kilometers an hour. Uh, and that was enough to scare me. Uh, didn't quite need to change the tri suit, but was not far (laughs) off. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want anyone else to be in this position. Um, literally and figuratively, uh, just because it, it does bring a lot of risks and it's it's something that is done purely for performance. Um, so I guess breaking that down, looking purely at the numbers, uh, we actually ran this through the, the virtual wind tunnel here just to get a few answers. So, um, so I had started with the baseline of a cyclist who was riding on the hoods And it was in a fairly aggressive position, not overly crouched, but it was pretty much along the lines of what you'd imagine someone riding normally on the hoods would be. And their CDA was 0.259 to start, which is on the good side, but not phenomenal. Uh, I think it was a bigger rider. And uh, so there's a lot of room for improvement there because if, uh, just for context, a good CDA for a time trialist or triathlete will be around 0.21 to 023 uh, so 0.259, good for road cyclists, not spectacular. Throughout the study, uh, I did a bunch of different things. And the two changes I'll focus on were, first of all, the puppy paws. And that brought it from 0.259 down to 0.233. Wow. Uh, so that's a pretty substantial increase. So there's, there's a good reason people were doing this. Um, not good from a safety aspect but good from a performance aspect. So that kind of performance difference uh, at 300 watts would actually net you about one and a half kilometers an hour, which is pretty close to one mile an hour. Um, so if you're in a breakaway and if you're trying to push the speed that much faster, uh, then yeah, it was worth taking some of the risks, or at least it was uh, there was a return on taking some of the risks. Um, and for comparison, this, this position... Uh, again, at a fixed 300 watts, would save you about two minutes over the course of 40 kilometers. Uh, so not an insubstantial amount of time. It was a pretty good return.
0: Yeah, that's that's dramatic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the really interesting thing that kind of, I don't want to say puts this to bed in my eyes, but at least puts it into context or uh, puts it into a relative comparison, is I took the same rider and had them crouch down into probably a similar torso position, but with more outboard arms and they kept uh, the the arms were or the hands were kept on the hoods so it was much safer race position and that resulted 0.236 uh, versus 0.233 so there's only a minor difference there um, so that was actually uh, in my eyes like you can maintain almost all of the benefit not 100% of the benefit but almost all of the benefit with much higher levels of safety and there's there's going to be some hybrids to this and i think people are going to experiment with it for a while but it really comes down more to torso position so how can you support yourself in a practical and safe torso position while getting getting this lower cda value so when we compare the the speeds of the riders or of the the different positions at 300 watts um there was a one and a half kilometer an hour improvement with the the puppy paws but actually uh it was 1.3 kilometers an hour improvement with the the lower torso position. So really, hmm. yeah, 0.2 kilometers an hour, it is a difference in the end. For sure. But it's not as big of a difference as it could be. It's um, Personally, I would go with the, the more safe position. And the other thing too, and this is a little bit more of an intangible, but if you're fighting to keep control of the bike, uh, you're actually going to increase rolling resistance. So if it's something where you have better control, you're going to keep your... Uh, your path more straightforward, it takes less steering corrections. That actually could have a, an impact in your overall speed too.
0: That's a factor that probably a lot of folks don't don't consider too much. But I suppose the puppy paws only really came into play when you're, uh, you know, you've got some free, free tarmac ahead of you where you're probably not mm-hmm. expecting to make a ton of corrections.
1: If you're doing this in the peloton, you're probably going to get shot or at least pushed out of the peloton.
0: Yeah, that doesn't seem like anything that those guys would do, hopefully you you mentioned torso angle being super important, and that makes a ton of sense. But what about uh, forearm angle? Because I'm thinking back to mm-hmm. uh, the breakdown that you did for us, Andrew a while back when you looked at all the you know you 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 dissected yourself and you looked at the individual component drag the drag from the individual components of your body and your bike. And I remember the forearms being uh, non-inconsequential. and that was on a time trial bike when the when the arms when the forearms are fairly hidden from the behind the fist, right? I mean, high, high hands notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a, you know, if you're, if you're sitting up on the hoods or in the drops, your forearms are very much in the wind versus in like a puppy paw or a modified paw position, you know, you would, uh, you would hide, you would hide a lot of your forearms out of the wind. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So the, the path the airflow would take to get to your body or at least around your body. Um, if you put the, your arms directly in front of you, more like a time trial bike, it's going to have less of an impact because, um, yes, the drag specifically on the forearms might be higher, but you're probably reducing the drag for anything downstream. Uh, It's kind of like drafting behind another car or truck or rider or whatever analogy you want to use there. But you are passing along some of your drag to the person behind you. So they're benefiting from your, your sacrifice there. Um, so yeah, with the the forearms in front of you with the the puppy paws like that would definitely reduce the torso drag. Even if you break it down specifically object by object, the drag might actually still be quite high on them, but it's just you're you're impacting things downstream, which is one of the challenges for analyzing anything like this. Um, the horizontal arms, it's less of an impact uh, because you're reducing your frontal area, um, but also. When you deal with a heavily inclined or uh, or horizontal cylinder versus a vertical cylinder that's completely viewable to the wind, mm-hmm. um, you could have the same frontal area, but the drag coefficient is much lower on the inclined cylinder. Because if you take right. a section through that, and I think we've discussed this before, but if you take a section through that cylinder the way the air would see it, you're actually turning it into an ellipse. So if you imagine, I've got a water bottle in front of me, but if you... Uh, hold it to 45 degrees, and if you were to take a slice through there and look at what that profile would be, it would be much more elliptical, um, very elliptical, which reduces the drag coefficient significantly versus having just right. a vertical cylinder. So there's there's definitely a benefit with having that uh, that angle and having the inclined angle. So if you have your arms more or less straight up, even if you have your torso low. Um, and the drops are actually good representation of this position um it's one reason i'm not a huge fan of that um in terms of aerodynamics it does take less muscular effort because now you're locked out and you're not uh, having to support yourself with the muscles but it uh it's not as aerodynamically efficient
0: Maybe. If you want to get low in the drops, you're not locked out. But the other advantage of the drops is that, you know, it gives you your it lowers your center of mass quite a bit. Right. So for for cornering, mm-hmm. for like high speed descents, drops are obviously, you know, where where you're going to live. Um, mm-hmm. But that's a listen, that's a that's a, that's a great uh, that's a great starter. So there's definitely something to uh, the clamor that we're hearing from uh, from both uh, cyclists and, and cycling fans. Uh, who bemoan the the banning of this position because it things things will slow down as a result
1: unless a unless
0: enterprising cyclists can figure out a way to to still you know obey the letter of the law while while getting almost the same position it sounds like
1: and I would say really enterprising cyclists don't even obey the letter of the law uh, but that's more of a history lesson
0: <laughs> oh burn and a low blow yeah yes a little bit. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about um, this one's going to be a little short segment. uh, Just an extension on my experimentation with uh, the HRV DFA Alpha One analysis, uh, specifically its use in uh, determining your aerobic threshold. Um, And uh, I've been I've been a big fan of this. Uh, A huge thank you again to uh, to Bruce Rogers who was on a few weekends ago. few weeks ago uh, to talk about this if you haven't heard that episode yet it's uh, probably our most popular of the recent shows that we've done Uh, it's gotten a lot of uh, a lot of attention from some very smart individuals people who have who I have a ton of respect for uh, who've reached out and said uh, that they've heard it and that they got something from it and that's always very um, very gratifying to hear of course Um, but, um, back to the topic at hand, I have been experimenting with it. So I've done the, uh, the bike test, as I mentioned last time I spoke about it. Um, I still haven't tried it too much outside because I realized that for, at least for me, at least with my strap, I need a controlled environment and the snow on the ground does not allow for a controlled environment. So I've been sticking with it on the bike, but, um, one uh, one use case that I've explored is doing a longer ride, like uh, on Saturday to three hours, which for me is quite long on the trainer, um, and seeing what, uh, what Alpha One does over the course of time as I kind of held power fairly constant. I was trying to go for a, a very aerobic ride, so keeping it below that aerobic threshold uh, the whole time. And um, I found that for the first couple hours, I was doing great. Um, and then as I, was, uh, as I was progressing past that, I noticed that uh, my Alpha 1 value was dropping, which is it was getting closer to that 0.75 threshold. Um, and then in a couple of intervals, it went actually below that by a little bit. And what I took that to mean was that for whatever reason, and uh, you know, it could have been a little bit of you know, neuromuscular fatigue, or I wasn't really fueling that session super well. It was low intensity, so I definitely lowballed it. Um, so that could have been a little bit of you know f- uh, substrate stuff going on there. Um, I don't think I was overheating, but but also like my butt was getting sore, and I was uh, I was kind of having to move around the saddle a lot more in the towards the end. Uh, poor choice of shorts. And so that, anyway, regardless, regardless of what the rec- the reasons were, that value was uh, trending towards the threshold and actually dipping below the threshold. And when I talk about it, the, the DFA alpha one value dipping below the threshold, it's kind of an inverse relationship. It means that my physiological state was actually tipping above the threshold, which is what I wanted to avoid. So what I ended up doing was just making very small adjustments to my power. I was riding erg mode on Zwift. And so it's very easy, as you guys know, who've ridden on Zwift to to just, you know, modify that power a little bit. I think I went from hanging out around, uh, bouncing around 215, 220 watts, which would be below my aerobic threshold of say 230, 235. But after a couple hours, it started getting kind of close. So I ended up, you know, taking it down, I think five watts um, and that kept it, um, nicely below. So the reason I tell you this long and hopefully not terribly boring anecdote, listeners, is because uh, I'm trying to test out a use case for this um, for this tech to m- monitor longer workouts and making sure that if our stated goal of a workout is to ride below, maybe close to, but below uh, the aerobic threshold with this uh, with this analysis, this monitoring tool from Marco Altini and HRE for training you can do it um and w- what's more is that you there are things that are happening that make you want to make modifications to your power plan for the ride for example in order to make sure that you you stay there and for me that's that's a very useful that that that's like that's like utility in a nutshell of this of this new tool so um, I was uh, I was pretty excited when I found it, even though it meant I had to ride a little bit easier, or actually because it meant I I could ride a little bit easier. Like, oh yeah, I'm still I'm still close to my aerobic threshold. I'm still getting the kind of the metabolic benefit of this, um, and maybe the the neuromuscular benefit too. I'm just gonna dial it down a little bit and not feel bad about it. So, um, I was uh I was a big fan.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting to hear. I know that um my good friend Art Hare, who we've had on the show. Um, He's been playing around with essentially a heart rate erg mode. So if you want to hold a fixed heart rate, what kind of power you would uh, need to output. Um, So the early incarnations of this were actually quite funny because heart rate is lagging. So if you put your target at, say, 160 beats per minute, you will get 900 watts until you (laughs) hit 160 beats per minute. Yeah, you Uh you need a filter on that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's obviously challenges there, but looking at, uh, at this kind of metric to control a, especially when you're dealing with long, long aerobic rides, uh, and being able to just lightly trim the the value versus completely controlling it. Um, I think there's, there's some interesting opportunities there. It could be something that find it finds its way into some of the more common platforms.
0: Yeah, I think I, I'm super excited, and I think uh, you know you and I know some people who are who are working on on uh, trying to or at least thinking about incorporating some of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's exciting to to see if it's if it's going to go anywhere. I mean, listeners, I I, I I say this every time I talk. I'm talking about this as exciting as this analysis is, it's still fairly new. Um, and you know, there's probably some rigorous testing that needs to happen before we can kind of you know put a stamp of approval on it. Um, there's still things that work great and things that don't work that great as a, as a perfect example, I, um, so I've been using uh, a Polar H9 strap that I bought specifically to do the analysis, but I, um, I have another Bluetooth strap, uh, a really old, I think maybe even first generation, uh, Wahoo ticker strap, which works great. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's still, you know, ticking along. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I tried it for this analysis and it was nonsense. it gave me complete nonsense data. And, uh, I think Andrew, you had some ideas as to why that was, but it goes to show you that it's not, it's not as straightforward potentially as, as it can be. And, uh, especially with something that takes this level of data processing, the, the old garbage in garbage out adage really applies.
1: Yeah, and my guess for that is that most Bluetooth heart rate monitors, like Bluetooth does update faster than ANT+, or it has the potential to update faster than ANT+. Mm. But there's probably a lot of averaging that goes on. So if you're trying to get beat-to-beat variability, but you're averaging it like crazy, then that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. In the end you're just you're getting rid of the data that you're interested in. So um, that's, that's my best guess. So it's nothing to do with the, the, the ticker itself or with any other heart rate monitor. It's just specifically for this protocol. It's not currently compatible. Um, and it's not to say that the ticker or any other ones couldn't be, it's just the firmware that they have on them. It doesn't output the data in the format that you need right now.
0: Yeah. And this is also like a really old model. So it could have been that they've changed it 14 times since, since I got this, uh, this particular one. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's really important to make sure that you have you know folks that you have the the right tools for the job. So I'll I'll keep playing around with it. I think it's uh, um, I don't do it you you know for for day to day riding anymore, but um, it is fun uh, to do to do a periodic check. Also, you know it's it's a very it's a fairly low uh, low cost and low uh, stressed way to test your aerobic threshold, which I think is. Honestly, one of the most important metrics for for folks to track and one of the hardest ones uh, that has been so far to uh, measure fairly accurately.
1: So, Michael, if I were to say to you seven hours, what would cross your mind?
0: Uh, The absolute minimum amount of time I need to sleep in a night in order to be at least a semblance of a functioning human being. Is that what we're talking about, Andrew? Uh,
1: Maybe before the episode, but... On air, no. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> but Thanks for your attempt. Uh, seven hours in triathlon, more specifically.
0: Yeah. So, listeners, you may have uh, you may have had this cross your radars, but there is a pretty bold project in the works uh, from the likes of Christian Blumenfeld and uh, Jan Ferdino on the men's, trying to go sub seven in a full distance iron event. And on the women's side, trying to sneak in under the eight-hour mark, it's uh, Nicholas Spirig and Lucy Charles Barkley. So this is a really bold undertaking, and I think it's probably a little bit of a bigger lift for the for the fellows than it is for the ladies, just because of the way the current world records are. Uh, but it's it's super exciting because it. Um, depending on the format that they choose, I imagine they may do something like the Breaking 2 format where it's not really a race in the traditional sense, but they're just trying to do this in, a, in an optimized uh, environment just to do their, their absolute very best in, in order to to break these records. Uh, have you heard about that? Which way it's going to
1: go, Andrew? No, no. I honestly don't know a lot of these details. Um, so you would actually brought it to my attention Initially, so I hadn't seen any previous media coverage, so I've got a very fresh perspective here.
0: <laughs> Fair point. So why don't we start at uh, at where the the current world record sits? Uh, records, plural, of course, men and mm-hmm. women, um, and we're obviously going to include the the challenge races because historically, other than that one running of uh, of Ironman Texas that was short, and I think that was in 2018 um the 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 race of challenge roth has been the one that uh, with one notable exception has produced the fastest results so i have these pulled up in front of me cuz i don't remember these of course in top of my head but um the fastest iron distance race was uh, ferdino uh, the man himself in uh uh 2016 at roth he went 735. 39. Um, then the next couple of <laughs> results are from that te- shorter Texas race. And then the next, uh, the next result that was from, a, a full course was Tim Don in Brazil, uh, in the year in the following year in 17. And that was seven hours, 40 minutes and 23 seconds. So we're kind of looking at seven thirty five being, being the standard for the, for the men. And remember, they're trying to go under seven. So that's, that's, that's a lot of, that's a, that's a lot of minutes to shave. Um, and then for the for the women, uh Chrissy Wellington still holds that record, also set at Roth in eight hours, eighteen minutes, and thirteen seconds so for for the women it's it's a matter of uh, chopping eighteen minutes off uh, so about half the half the time reduction of the men, but eighteen minutes is a is a world of time uh, when you're already so so fast
1: yeah, and this is I mean, this is exactly why you said it's more of a heavy lift for the men. Not that seven hours in particular is necessarily more of a physical challenge. It's just there's a lot bigger difference, uh, percentage reduction in time that's required. Uh, so let's look at the men and let's see how you could uh, you could
0: possibly you know put together, lump together a a seven hour Ironman and Andrew. And this is uh, this is some place where you can start. So for for example, the fastest swim of all time was Luke McKenzie in 42 and a half minutes. And that was in Brazil in, in 2010. So that's 42 and a half. So that's a very possible swim. Um, the the fastest bikes, and this is funny because <laughs> the top five of these are Andrew, <laughs> <are> Andrew Starkovits. <laughs> so he's basically, it looks like he's out there just to win the bike and then go home. Although that's that's not very charitable to Andrew, who's an amazing athlete. Um, but he's got uh, in that Texas race, which was shortened. he actually went sub four. He went 354, 59. But in um in the the previous years running of that race, he was just over four hours, so he was 4.01. He did that again in Florida as well,
1: 4.01. And it, I think in that Texas race, he was actually, had it been 180 kilometers, he was on pace to beat four hours, I think. I think so. Very, very close to it.
0: Because it was only two miles short, if I remember correctly. And then two miles at, at that pace is what, like three kilometers, three and a bit. At that pace, it's like, that, that's like four ish minutes, four or five minutes. And he would have beat his base. Yeah. He would have beat his base. Yeah.
1: I, I forget the exact numbers, but I do recall that discussion happening. So all, all credit to him there. Like he, for all intents and purposes, he would have been the first person to, to break the four hour barrier. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and then the run, uh, still sticking with the men, of course, uh, again, excluding that Texas race, which was short, um, uh, Ben Hoffman has the fastest run at two thirty six, and that's in Florida. Just, uh, Two years ago in 2019, a year and a half ago, not even. Um, so 236, that's the fastest run. So here's here let, let's go with those times. So we got a 236 run. I hope you have your calculator out, Andrew, or, uh, or a piece of paper. Um, uh, a four flat, let's say 401, let's say four flat freeze of math bike. That's what we have currently, and a 42 and a half minute swim. So if you could lump those like the best possible, you know, Case scenario given current performances, if we were to pick and choose and we said transitions don't count, which they may not, I don't know how, what the format of this race is going to be. Uh, what do we end up with?
1: Seven hours and 19 minutes. Yeah.
0: So, or, yes, yes, that's right. Sorry, just
1: trying to read my calculator.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Seven hours and 19 minutes. And that's, you know, lumping together the fastest performances of all time from. from and no like, transition the
1: times there, too. And
0: no transition times from the last basically 11 years of racing. Um mm-hmm. so then the million dollar question is how do you go from 719 to sub 7 in one human uh, in
1: one day Yeah well there's there's certainly some tricky things you can do like uh for example when I did Cozumel I think the race times were actually or at least the swim times were actually sub 40 minutes for the pros but that's a down not downhill uh down current <laughs> swim uh which is essentially downhill in the water but uh yeah I mean that one's I'll meet you. I'll meet
0: you halfway there. So there are this, this is uh, from an, from the awesome dot rating.com website that I'm taking all of these splits. Um, So the downhill swim, um, the fastest downhill swims were, was in Chattanooga and I've swam there and it's a legit fast swim. If you, if you get the current, right. Was uh, Bear Brandon in uh, 2014 and he swam a 38 low. So, Mm -hmm. all right, you just won yourself another four minutes. So let's, let's lock that off. Let's, let's be generous. So now what, uh, 7.15?
1: Yep. So we're at 7.15. Um, So that would, (laughs) that would leave a lot of time to make up. Uh, But (laughs) realistically, the fastest you could well, I mean, the fastest possible in the marathon is just over two hours, and that's fresh. So there's no way after riding three hours at 300 watts, you're going to be able to pull off a you know two hour under two hour and ten minute marathon. Yeah. No. Uh, um, so I would say the, the guess is like maybe 2:30 could be beaten, um, and I'm sure it will be beaten at some point. But that's going to be uh, that's going to be a, a, a pretty heavy lift, I think, taking that much time 6 minutes off of the the marathon.
0: For what it's worth, yeah. I mean, we're totally listeners obviously this is an exercise in uh in in you know tissue paper holding in the wind. So we're well let's say let's say we'll do 6 minutes and the reason we're narrowing it down to the bike is because you know on the bike we can actually Turn on our brains and do some uh, do some math. Actually, turn on Andrew's computer and do some math and figure out <laughs> I'm how fast. i take taking credit for this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. Uh, how fast and and how arrow? Oh, how hard you have to work and how arrow you need to be in order to actually kind of get within within spitting distance of this one. So let's do let's do a two thirty um, a two thirty marathon. Let's assume that that is that is in the cards and that saves another six minutes. So now we've got nine minutes that we gotta we gotta. Somehow cleave off Starkowitz's already ridiculous four-hour flat rate bike split. So you got to get you got to get us to three fifty-one, Andrew. How do we get to three fifty-one?
1: Yes. So three fifty-one. So let's say that we're doing um, approximately forty-five kilometers an hour would be four hours. Um, so the the numbers. Uh, this is just going to the the gribble Cycling Power and Speed Calculator, which I'm sure most people have probably played with a little bit. Um, but using a CDA of 0.21 and a mass of 68 kilograms, which I think is a little bit lighter than Starkey, um, <laughs> but that's, that, that's uh, that how he can go four hours
0: on a flat course is because he's a little yeah. bit heavier than 68 kilos.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, a little bit more power than 300 watts, I think. <laughs> right, um, right. So, yeah, with a CDA of 0.21, that brings us to basically the the 45 kilometer an hour mark. So, I mean, that's that's within reason right so, so the, that's four hours the four hour yeah yeah the four hours within reason um and it's been shown it's been proven yeah um so if you were to look at track cycling as inspiration the the numbers that we've heard previously talking to uh to our friend kurt bergen taylor uh it actually gets us closer to at the low end a 0.16 cda which is I want to say astronomical, but the opposite of that. Um, <laughs> Minuscule? Minuscule, yep. yes. Oh, right. uh, so I see we were on the same page there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if we if we had a 0.16 CDA, which again is going to be very difficult to, to maintain for that length of time, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, at the constant 300 watts, again, with zero wind impact and zero elevation gain and nothing else happening, uh, that would take you to 48.1. Eight kilometers an hour, roughly. Let's just say forty-nine kilometers an hour for easy figuring.
0: Actually, you have a calculator. Don't make yeah. Make this easy. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) exactly. None of this is easy figuring. (laughs)
0: Okay,
1: so if you're doing one hundred and eighty kilometers at forty-eight point seven six, that would take you three point six nine hours. So that would be three hours and forty-one minutes. Wow. Um, So that that would be ten minutes to spare. Well, yeah, transitions. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not impossible. It just takes, and this is, this is why we focused on the bike because there's more to be gained with, let's say technology or technique. Uh-huh. Um, Agreed. but I, I think that that is probably the area like swimming is probably close to its limit unless you use something like the speedo suit. Um, and running is pretty close well, to its you limit. You do use speedo suits,
0: right? Like that's what speed suits are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they would use like whatever wetsuits. Whatever, whatever made them the fastest under the circumstances.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, so just without invoking new technology, let's say something Fair. equivalent to the speedo suit, I think is what I was getting at. Um, uh, didn't have a calculator to help me on that one, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> the The time savings that we could see with the the bike leg are more substantial. You you also spend the most time there too, mm-hmm. so it's the fastest. It's the most dependent on. Uh, not something that's directly under your control, or at least something that can be easily manipulated by you in your drag coefficient, Yeah uh, so or drag area, more technically. But um, yeah, it's it's something that would be achievable. I'd say it would take a lot of time and effort, and probably money to get this level. But uh, yeah, if you were to save 19 minutes, um, then that that is a possibility. And looking at some of Jan Ferdino's performances, uh, or even Blumenfeld, um, like they've, they have demonstrated that they can run super fast after really cooking it on the bike. So I don't, and they're both good swimmers. So I don't think this is entirely unreasonable. I think it'll be a while before it happens, but it's not impossible.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I, I don't disagree, especially with the kind of the innovations that we're seeing from the track cycling world, um, and this has now become my favorite uh, my favorite example, but if you look at uh, the recent pdo championships in Daytona where you had you know a relative unknown um compared to the rest of the field, um Magnus Ditlev, who had a f- who had the fastest bike split on the day he rode faster than any of the other super bikers on the course including our you know our fan favorite lionel um he didn't beat him by much but he did beat him by a little bit uh now he you know didn't have he didn't have an amazing swim or an amazing run but he still did had a had a terrific race um and my kind of my pet theory on one of the reasons that that Magnus was able to have such a terrific race is that he did the right, he did the aerodynamic things, right. Uh, probably more right than a lot of his, um, competitors on the day. Uh, and, uh, spoiler alert listeners, you're going to hear from, uh, from Magnus and his, uh, his, uh, I don't know their, their formal relationship, but his, at least his aerodynamics advisor in, uh, in an episode in the very near future. But, uh, Uh, I think I, I totally agree with you, Andrew. There is, there is the room for improvement still in triathlon on the, Mm -hmm. the aero front for sure. Um, I will have to say, I mean, this is the exercise that we did here guys, um, or listeners is very optimized, idealistic. A CDA of 0.16 is unheard of in triathlon, This is, Mm -hmm. this is kind of, you know, it's, it's not impossible on the track and we see lots of, um maybe not lots, but we definitely see male track uh, athletes achieving 0.16. It is not anywhere near anything we've seen in male triathletes for a whole number of reasons, which we – Maybe get into that episode where we where we talked to Magnus and martin uh Toff Manson who is uh, Magnus's advisor uh but it's not something that that's currently seen so that that's a huge leap um I agree with with Andrew that it's not impossible but it it's we're we're nowhere near there now and also using kind of like a a model like what Andrew used to do his math that's an idealized model too that's not real mm-hmm. that's no win that's I don't know what you plugged in for rolling resistance or for mechanical drag, because when you're shaving those seconds, like all of that stuff really matters. It's almost like doing the hour record, like when we talked with Dan Bigham.
1: Yeah, so I, I took the default values for that calculator, and you can probably manipulate through, those through spending more money uh, for optimized equipment. But uh, the one advantage that triathlon does have, and I'll, I'll say this, is uh, that we as triathletes can do a lot more with our position than UCI governing track cyclists. So there, there is potentially area for well. There's obviously room for improvement, but there's also things that we can explore that uh, that others are not able to. So it's it's a little bit of a carrot out there. Um, so I think it's yeah, it's it's definitely something to keep pushing for. And I think that as athletes, as you know, the accessibility to tools like uh, you know, like virtual wind tunnel or wind tunnels or testing equipment like AeroLab or Noshio Connect. Uh, those will help people dial into those numbers much better than they could previously.
0: Yeah, I think uh I think you nailed it with that last bit that um what makes me the most excited about this, uh, this new project of seven, eight hours, is unlike Nike's Breaking Two, where there was definitely a technological component with most notably with the shoes, um, but also with the, you know, the way that they were um structuring the formation of the lead out runners for uh, for Iliad uh with this attempt there's so much more to optimize because of course you know you got three sports um and it might shine a light uh you know or maybe turn up the brightness on the light on the importance of aerodynamics in tri- in triathlon and if you can get these records that are you know, like, like um, I almost said Paula's record, but uh, no, Chrissy's Chrissy's record that has stood for uh, almost eleven years has been unbroken. Um, if that if that falls, if um, if either Christian or Jan can take that whopping thirty nine minutes off of off of his time, um, just by getting all like by doing all the little things right, I think that shows that. You know, us mortals can do potentially even more because, even though, even though the faster you go, the more of a of a power difference, let's say, uh, aerodynamic improvements make. If you're spending 16 hours on an Ironman course over the course of that race, those uh, that the impact of those potentially minor interventions can have real long duration uh, benefits.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's exciting times.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, listeners, thank you very much for uh, for spending another little bit of time with us. As we close out, we want to read one more review that you kindly submitted. And uh, as we've been calling for them, uh, please do keep them coming. They warm the cockles of our hearts. <laughs> but also, I think, help us in the, uh, in the episode ranking. The episode downloads have actually been going up quite a bit lately. Um, and I wonder if that is as a result of uh, all of your kind reviews and comments. Um, or if it's uh, a testament to the excellent guests that we've had on in the last little while, uh, to whom I'm all grateful. But uh, here's one review from uh, iTunes user Greta April. The review is titled Just What the Title Says Straight Up Talk About Innovations in Endurance Sport That Can Help You Enjoy the Sport More. And they keep the technical talk to a level that's easy to understand. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. Uh, we do
1: our best. That definitely warmed the cockles of my heart, which is well needed because the weather in Alberta has been freezing my cockles.
0: <laughs> Distinctly non-cockle warming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so with that, listeners, uh, I would say thank you one more time and uh, invite you to rate and review us and join us next time on Endurance. Thanks, everyone. One thing I will say about my mess, because of all the stuff down here and because it's a small space, it makes for a very good acoustic
1: environment. Yeah. It dampens out all the reflections.
0: <laughs> yeah. I got like my my like my clothes hanging over here and then you know, this this wall that's like it's a it's a pegboard wall and with another wall behind it. So it's almost like, you know, noise canceling, noise attenuating foam. Poor yeah, man's yeah. Noise, yeah. foam. Like, you know, I can do the yeah. um The egg cartons onto it, I suppose.
1: (laughs) Just get those out of the garbage and you'll be all set. (laughs)
0: That's right.